So, how are things in China? This again, every week since I arrived in Guangzhou, you've asked, how are things in China? And every week it's the same story. Listeners are getting bored of hearing about my 12-hour flight, the three weeks in quarantine, and signing on at the university. It's old news, Joshua. No one needs to hear about it again. Yeah, true, but this week was more momentous. You're officially an associate professor now, given you signed the contract and all, but you got the swankiest office. Well, not quite. I haven't seen it yet. They're cleaning it today. Sorry, did you say cleaning it in the sense of they are cleaning it, or cleaning it in the sense that I'm meant to pick up on something sinister? You heard me. I heard you, or I heard you. I can't really comment. Mm-hmm. Okay. Blink twice if you're in danger. No, twice. Not five times. Okay, now you're not blinking at all. Should you be able to lick your own eyeball? The Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, brought to you today by Josh Edison and Dr. M. Denton. Hello and welcome to the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy in Auckland, New Zealand. I am Josh Edison and in Zhuhai, China, we have Dr. M. Dentith. Did I say Dr. M. Dentith? I meant Associate Professor M. Dentith. Yeah, that's probably worth a sting. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Or, or, or actually, do the announcement of, of my of my of my position again? Did I say Dr. M. Dentith? I meant Associate Professor M. Dentith. You Not your, your own punchline. Yes. Yes, so the papers are signed. Signed, sealed and delivered, I assume. Well, actually, no, I actually just received a message on WeChat from my friend in the international office to say that the contract has actually been officially sealed. So I signed it yesterday. Yeah. It's now got the official university seal upon it. There are three copies of it. It is done and dusted. They can't get well, actually they can they can get rid of me within the next, next six months because there's a probationary period. But if they can wait wait out the six months, well, they're stuck with me forever. Excellent. So I think uh, I think that's that's kind of all we have to say. I mean, everybody knows the details about your your the, the long process of getting a university job in China and all, how how long it's taken you to sort all that out and doing all your all your quarantine and everything. So we probably don't need to talk about that at all. Shall we just get into the main episode? Indeed, because we've got an exciting instalment of conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre, which I believe, Josh, you are the master. And I am the theatre. No, it's a what the conspiracy. Conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre is the other one that we have the other sting for. Then you, you the are sting. And I am the conspiracy? See, this doesn't work. I know, a... you know, it would have worked better. Maybe, yeah. maybe, we, got the, maybe we got the titles wrong. All, around, all along we should have been calling this conspiracy theory masterpiece theatre and the other ones. I don't know. It's true. Maybe I we mean, need a third sting. Now, we're stuck with the stings as they are. But we can always have to have we are stuck with it, yep. sense, sense of regret. Because basically, what is life other than mm. a series of vague senses of regret and an overblown budget for MCU well, series? Yes. Uh, well, yeah, okay, just I play the theme and we'll, we'll see who regrets what. I'll insert the theme around about here. 
it's time to play Womp the Conspiracy. Right, so, Womp the Conspiracy and it's my turn. Um, so we should do we should do the, uh, the where, when and what and why and how and who. Um, before I get you to guess when, where and what this conspiracy theory concerns, I have a slight confession to make. Um, I'm cheating a bit this week. Rather than trying to introduce you to a conspiracy theory that you've never heard of, I want to talk about something you've probably definitely have heard of, but don't know all the details in the background, because I think that will still make for an interesting story. So with that in mind, give me the when, the where, and the what as you discern them. Right, well, I'm going to go 20th century for the when. Mm-hmm. The what I'm going to take is going to be some kind of political shenanigan, possibly not an assassination, some kind of kidnapping. Okay, interesting. And so that's, we've got we've got the when, the what, and the third question is, since it's such a long time since we've done one of these. The where. where. Oh, where. Where is traditional? I'm really sure it's not going to be Jupiter, but I really want to say Jupiter. I'm going to say... Israel. So a kidnapping plot in Israel in the 20th century. Yeah, no, you're, you're one out of three. Uh, 20th century, early 20th century. Okay. Um, the US, the USA. I don't understand how the war, either World War One or World War Two started. That would be good, but no. Oh. Because we're, we're mostly in the USA. We'll take brief detours to Canada and Italy. Ooh. But that's mostly where it takes place. Um, is this... Hmm. Is, is this one of Robert Langdon's ancestors? It's going to be a kind of symbology thing. Is there is a globe tropping, globe tropping, globe trotting to it? Uh, not quite, but sort of. Because what I want to talk to you today uh, about today is the Ponzi scheme. The Ponzi scheme. The scheme after which all other Ponzi schemes take their name. So I'm assuming you've heard of the, the, the term Ponzi scheme. I have indeed. I'm assuming that, like me, you probably heard about it in 2008 when Bernie Madoff was convicted of of running the biggest Ponzi scheme the world had ever seen. Or had you heard it before that? Yes, I mean, I think I think almost every single person mm. of recent note. I mean, presumably people in the early 20th century who you know before Bernie Madoff even existed knew about Ponzi schemes. But for most modern people. Ponzi schemes mm. kind of entered the public consciousness with the Madoff scheme. Yeah, so that was that was he was arrested sort of late two thousand and eight, and the trial went all through two thousand and nine. So I think yeah, that's that's where I'm pretty sure most of the, the the modern world was introduced to the scheme. So do you actually know what a Ponzi scheme is? It's a scheme of Ponzi's. So you know you know Close. You, know, you know Fonzi from Happy Days. Mm-hmm. Happy so Days, his yep, grandfather. Yep. Pa Fonzi was Ponzi. Ponzi. And the Ponzi yes, scheme yes, yes. was created by Fonzi's grandfather to be incredibly cool by basically hitting jukeboxes, although in those days they weren't really jukeboxes, they were more kind of gramophones. No, you just you, you just punched the servant who was playing yeah. the playing the uh, record so player. Ponzi so basically punch a servant to make a song play whilst going cool. Right. Yes, no, interesting, but also wrong. Um, a Ponzi uh, scheme... Wrong in a really, really fascinating way. Well, exactly, yes. Now, that's the best kind of wrong. 
Um, but in actuality, a Ponzi scheme is uh, it's, it's a kind of fraud. It's a fraudulent business scheme. And the, the central part of it is that it involves paying returns to investors from the money that you've gathered from other investors. So usually what happens is the person running the scheme... Yes, which is basically what happened in the South Canterbury finance scandal in New Zealand about 10 yep. years ago. Yeah, yeah, where basically you're yep, promising a few people of large numbers of returns, but you're basically borrowing against mm. other people that you're also meant to be paying out. So if you get in early then you get paid out. But if you come in late to the scheme, then it's basically just a paper trail with no actual cash in the background. Exactly, yes. So usually it starts with someone saying, hey, look, I've got this business or I've got this scheme for making money, which will give you give you high returns, guaranteed, um, consistently low risk or, or sometimes you know no risk whatsoever um, to attract investors in. Um, but this either the business doesn't exist, the scheme doesn't exist, or they do exist but couldn't actually possibly turn a profit or or produce the level of returns that you're claiming. And so all that happens is rather than taking in money, investing it, and then paying out returns, you take in money, keep it, and when someone asks to you tell people they're getting big returns, and when someone asks to be paid out, you pay out. Um, but otherwise, you just keep all the money for yourself. And yeah, so it um, it's ba- basically the the cliche of robbing Peter to pay Paul is essentially the 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 central um, central mechanism of a Ponzi scheme. They're a bit like a pyramid scheme in that they both Ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes only work if you can keep getting more and more investors coming in. But Ponzi's are a bit more. A bit more stable, like a pyramid scheme, pretty much requires um, um, exponential growth to uh, of investors to to keep working. Whereas a Ponzi scheme, there's usually sort of you know a central, all the money is coming into one central point, not not trickling up. Um, and also, if it's run well, a Ponzi scheme usually encourages the investors to keep their money in the scheme. So, you know, some you you tell people, oh, you've doubled your money. And rather than then saying, okay, good, give me my doubled money back, they'll say, oh, sweet, we'll, we'll keep it in the scheme and then double it again and again. Um, so on paper, you're telling these people they've made these massive returns, but of course, that's that's complete fiction. Um, and of course, that was what was the downfall of the Southern Canterbury finance system, was people suddenly wanting to take money out of the system and then finding that the people running it were going, oh, we, uh, we can't release the funds just yet. If you can just give us a few weeks or a few months, we can release the funds. At which point people started to go, but isn't the money just in one bank account? Can't you just, you know, make a transaction? It almost sounds as if you're waiting for someone to put money in Mm. so that then you can take money out, which kind of indicates that maybe the bank balance is a little low. Maybe it's a little low. Yes, precisely. Yep. So, I mean, in theory a Ponzi scheme could be sustained for a good long while. And I mean, Bertie Madoff was at it for for almost 20 years, I think, before his his one failed. In, in theory, a Ponzi scheme could 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 conceivably work out if, if, say, you have a scheme that legitimately could produce good returns but isn't, but it's failing at the moment. You could run it as a Ponzi scheme until you get lucky and the scheme actually starts working and then and at that point it could become legitimate. But, you know, usually they fail either because the, the person running it 
you know, is is invariably uh, some sort of a con man fraudster who just takes the money and runs, um, or because too many people try to withdraw their money at once and it becomes obvious that you don't have the money to give them, or because people get suspicious of, of, of these miraculous returns you're promising and start investigating you, which can then lead to a bunch of people trying to withdraw all their funds and it collapses again. Um, I think the Bernie Madoff was interesting because he he did actually have a business, and I, I think in his case it was more that his business couldn't return couldn't couldn't produce the returns that he promised but it was still making some money so he was able to last a long while but anyway we're not going to talk about Bernie Madoff um even though possibly for our purposes he he's a better example because he's his 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 case is more overtly conspiratorial but anyway the, but, but but the more interesting fellow is an Italian man by the name of Charles Ponzi Charles is not a very Italian name well yeah I don't know Charles Ponzi is what it's is is um what I always read. I don't know. Is there an Italian version like like Giuseppe for Joseph or something? I don't know if there's a. I don't know if that's an anglicised version of his birth name. But Charles Ponzi is what I've always read. Yeah, again, a good friend of mine is Timothy, and he was born in Parma, and his parents just decided that they would give him an English name. So mm, it does. Yeah, so it could be could be a similar just like thing. Charles Ponzi really doesn't sound like a particularly Italian person. It no. sounds like an Italian fraudster, which of course actually. Charles Ponzi mm. turns out to be. So actually, it's the perfect name for the inventor of the Ponzi scheme. Well, also, well, well, his last name was was Ponzi. Yeah, no, that did work out. Nice. I should say, he was, he's not the inventor of the Ponzi scheme. The, I mean, he's the, person the, the concept of the Ponzi scheme after. Yeah, the, the concept, I think, of the, the whole sort of robbing Peter to pay Paul thing has probably been around pretty much as long as there has been money. And there had been schemes that worked in this way and which failed in this way before Charles. But apparently um, a couple of Charles Dickens's books from the, the mid 1800s um, involve at, at various points, people getting involved in schemes that fit the definition of a Ponzi scheme. So he didn't, he didn't invent it, but his, his was the first sort of big case that captured national attention that made news headlines and what have, have you. So he's the one who, um, who, who gets the credit. Um, and he's an interesting fellow, is Mr. Ponzi. Um, he was born in 1882 in Italy to a formerly wealthy family that had sort of fallen on hard times. And so they sort of still had, from the sounds of things, they still had the social standing, I suppose, of a wealthy family, but without the actual wealth at that time. Um, so he went to university, like rich people did, um, and like most rich people in Italy at the time, apparently he'd spent his entire time at university just messing around, going to bars and cafes, not actually doing any work at all, um, uh, which meant that by the end of it, he had spent what money he had and had no degree to show for it. So um, in 1903, he went off to the United States to find his fortune over there. Um, and the more you read about him, the more the more it becomes apparent that he's just one of those one of those born grifters, one of those just sort of natural fraudsters who's always looking for a way to make an easy make a make a quick buck, make some easy money um, by fair means or foul. Um, so he arrived in the U.S. basically with just the shirt on his back. He had lost what money he'd brought over with him gambling on the voyage over. Um, so he immediately started looking for work, and to his credit, took basically whatever whatever jobs he could find. Although then, um, apparently, he sort of got a, got a job in a restaurant, uh, sleeping on the floor. Initially, that wasn't his job; that's just what he did because he had no nowhere to stay. 
um, graduated to wait, uh, being a waiter and was then fired when he was caught shortchanging customers and stealing. Um, he worked a few more jobs, moved around the country, eventually moved up to Canada. And by the time he'd moved up to Canada, he, was, uh, he could speak English and French in addition to his native Italian. So he could sort of, he had, um, and as you would expect from, from uh, this sort of a, a, a con man type, he was a very smooth talker. He was very persuasive, very charismatic. And so he was sort of, he was able to, always able to find work. Um, the interesting thing is while he was in Quebec, um, he was working, um, working for a bank. And it turned out that the bank he was working for, the manager was running a scheme which these days we would also call a Ponzi scheme. So it's not it's not it's not certain that this is actually where he got the idea from, but it certainly um, it, it doesn't seem like it could be a coincidence because yeah, basically the bank the bank was running low on money, and so the manager was paying out interest by taking it directly from other customers' deposits, and eventually he nicked a bunch of money and fled to Mexico and the bank folded, um, at which meant Ponzi was out of a job and so kept wandering again. He went to Montreal um, when, while visiting a business that I believe was a former customer of the bank he had been working for that folded. Um, he happened to find an unattended checkbook in an empty office and immediately forged himself a large check from the company um, and then cashed it, started splashing his money around, immediately attracted the attention of the police and got arrested and thrown in jail. I think we'll see he's he's ambitious, but he um doesn't doesn't have spectacular follow through, I think. So, so he doesn't really think his situations through, does he? Yeah, yeah. More more ambition than sense perhaps. So so at that point, so he he did uh, did three years in prison then. Um uh, and then eventually moved back to the U.S. Actually, at, at this stage, at this stage of, of his life, there's, there was one interesting story where apparently at one point he was working as a nurse, which I, I assume in the early 1920s, nurse probably didn't quite mean what it does today. It's not like he had medical training or anything, but he was um, working for an organization. And when he heard that another nurse working there had been badly burned and was in need of skin grafts, he volunteered to donate some of his own skin, despite the fact that he didn't actually even know this nurse, which seems quite quite out uh, quite an out of character act of altruism. But maybe he was just sort of that 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 sort of impulsive kind of a guy. Well, maybe he but, just had um, lots of flappy skin and went, "Look, maybe he did. Yeah. I need to get rid of some of the skin. I'll just give it away." Does anyone mm. want to you know find some books? Oh, you've got some burns. Let's let's remove your skin and put my skin on top of it. Maybe he was a kind of Hannibal Lecter style character just wanted his skin everywhere. Well, it's possible, and it doesn't come up again. But you could be right. Maybe he's the origin of Leatherface. Maybe he invented both the Ponzi scheme and the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Hmm. I'll have to look into that further. I don't have the material in front <clears throat> in front of me at the moment. Um, what I can tell you is that after after he got out of prison, went back to US, ended up in Boston. Um, in Boston, he found a wife. Um, who married him despite having been told about his his criminal past, and started working uh, a bunch of jobs. In some cases, working for companies owned by her family, where apparently he did not do very well. He was he was it sounds like he was pretty rubbish at managing companies, and they tended to to, to fold. And so he um so he but but he was still still looking looking for that big idea, looking for that um. 
scheme that was gonna gonna make him rich. And so what he was what he did was he his latest his latest um, idea to make some money was he set up a little company and his business model was basically he would think up he would sort of come up with money making ideas and then try to pitch them to other people and they could sort of pay him for 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 his good idea or something and and while he was doing that he was sending letters around the world he was sending letters back to people he knew in Europe. Um, to try and get them on board with some of his ideas. And one of the letters he received back to him contained a thing called an international reply coupon. Now, these still exist today, apparently, although I assume in this age of electronic communication, they don't get used very much. But an international reply coupon was um, a a little coupon that you could send along with the letter um, and it could be used to pay the return, pay the postage for a return letter. So, you know, if you if you sent something, sent a letter to someone, you wanted them to reply, and you wanted to pay pay for them, pay for their reply, um, instead of sending money, which would be, you know, you wouldn't might not know exactly what the postage was, and it wouldn't be the right currency and what have you. You could simply buy one of these international coupons, send it along with the letter, and then when the person wanted to. Um, uh, send the send the letter back to you. They could just use that to pay for it. Now I've actually used one of these. Ah, well, there you go. When uh, did you have to use one? Back in the day when I was trying to be a short fiction writer, and you were submitting work overseas in physical copy, because we're talking birth of the internet here. Many magazines were still wanting physical submissions rather than electronic ones. If you were sending things to the US, you, as you say, you couldn't just send money along. What you'd do is you'd go to the post office and you'd buy one of these coupons, which was basically the equivalent of buying return postage home. Hmm. So you would send a self-addressed envelope, a coupon, and your manuscript, and then that would then be used to return the manuscript to you, usually with a rejection letter. Hmm. Well, um, so but Charles Ponzi... Um had not encountered one of these before, and so he's quite interested to see this one. Um, but unlike you, his his mind immediately went to how can I how can I make money out of this? But because he found out that um, not only can you use an international return coupon, international reply coupon, or IRC, um, to, to to simply pay for a letter to be sent, you could also convert it to stamps to the value of sending that letter. Um, and then you could sell those stamps to people who wanted stamps. And so he realized what with currency exchange rates and so on, it would be possible to get someone to send you an IRC from a a country with a weak currency, send it to the US, um, and then exchange it for stamps in the US, which would be worth more than the postage of sending it the other way, and then sell those stamps, and you could actually make a profit doing that. Um, and, And that's... It's not illegal. That's that's basically arbitrage, I think they call it, where you where you buy something and then immediately on sell it at a higher price to make a profit. So he basically saw this is this is a way of making money for nothing, pretty much. And, and this so sounds he, like the common thing that people try to do with foreign with foreign currency exchange. They go, well, look, we should be able to somehow game the system by buying currency in a different country and then selling it back, which of course never works because currencies typically are indexed but this sounds like it is a viable scheme we should stop doing the podcast and indeed engage in an irc scheme we might make a fortune 
Well, you might want to listen to the rest of the story first. No, no, I've made the decision. We're stopping the podcast. We are going to engage in Arbitage instead. Okay, well, I didn't write these notes for nothing, so I'm just going to get this out of my system anyway. Okay, Um, but this decision has been made. There's nothing you can tell me which is going to change my mind. I can't imagine I could. Well, let's... Listen on and we'll see. So so he thought, okay, th- this is it. This is the get-rich scheme I've been waiting for. He went to banks to try and get a loan to say, you know, here, here's my plan. I want, give me a bunch of money and I'll make it. I'll, I'll get myself rich by trading in IRCs. And the bank said, no, don't be so stupid. No one would lend to him. So then he set up his own company called the Securities Exchange Company um, and went public. He, he started... Uh, Putting the word out that um, um, you know I can I can I've got the scheme for making money. He claimed I can double your investment in ninety days, and then when that didn't get enough attention, he said I'll, I can double your investment in forty five days, um, and and that started to bring in investors. He he said um, you know he explained his scheme. He said he had um, agents ready and waiting. He'd contacted people all around the world who would be able to send him these IRCs from overseas, and then they could do the exchange and make the money. Um, and so he, he, they just need to invest their money with him and they'll, they'll see these big returns. And he, um, he took money from anyone and everyone. No, no investment was too big and no investment was too small. He'd take, you know, dollars off people or huge amounts either. Um, and over the course of eight months, he brought in apparently about $15 million in 1920-odd so that which apparently like that's a lot of money. That's something like 180, 190 million dollars, something like that today. Um, and sure enough, his initial investors did get their big returns, um, just just as he said. And he started. Um, he got a lot of positive coverage in the press, the newspapers, the um, the, the Boston Post. I think is going to come up a bit were printing stories about look at this man Ponzi look at him he's making all this money he's he's this this business genius and he's look, look at the, the this huge amounts of cash flowing into his scheme um but obviously this was all complete rubbish um apparently at the time there were and i assume still are uh there were actually regulations in place around the purchasing of IRCs to prevent this sort of speculation um but even if that weren't the case the thing is, you, you can make a profit. Say you could make a 10% profit, but that's 10% on the cost of posting a single letter. So the, 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 the absolute amount you'd make off of each one of these IRCs is very small. So to be, say he's taken in his $15 million and claiming he's going to turn that into $30 million, to actually do that by trading in IRCs, even if you could, you'd need to be physically sending, you know, literal shiploads of these things across the Atlantic, um, just to be able to to make that amount of money. Um, so, obviously, what he was doing was he was he was ponzying it. He was ponzying the crap out of it. He was just keeping the money, sticking it all in his bank account. Um, and when people wanted to be paid out, he paid them out from that from that pool of money. And for a time, as these things tend to do, it work, was working out very nicely for him indeed. Uh, but then it wasn't. Um, so I mean, to be pe- people were suspicious from fairly early on. I think ju- just because it seemed too good to be true, they were suspicious of you know how how did this guy go from being pretty much penniless to being a millionaire? 
in in the 1920 1920s millionaire in such a short amount of time um now he he was able to allay suspicions a bit when um, a financial writer there in Boston um, had basically said that you know he's he said you know I've I've done the maths and his scheme can't possibly where well, he can't can't there's no way he could be producing the level of returns he's claiming, but Ponzi sued him for libel and won. Um, I assume because of how the libel wor- laws worked back then, um, which meant people then became a lot more reluctant to criticise him. Um, the authorities, though, who who um, wouldn't be so susceptible to, to libel charges, uh, w- wanted to have a look at him as well, look into his um, his scheme as well. But he, being the, the fast talker that he was, he sort of reassured them that everything was above board. But but look, okay, I'll t- tell you what I'll do, guys. I won't take any more money out of the scheme myself uh, while you're investigating. Is that you know will that will that um, uh, uh, soothe your suspicions, um, which basically was his his faster way of making it so that they wouldn't actually demand to see his books, which probably would have rumbled the scheme there and then. Just a quick question. I mean, mm-hmm. quite specifically, I won't take any money out of the scheme myself. Now, you mentioned a wife earlier. Was she going to take money out of the scheme on his behalf? I don't, I don't. I don't think so. I, I, it sounds like, I mean, first of all, this is the 1920s, so women were probably fairly firmly in the kitchen or the secretarial pool. Um, but it sounds like he was sort of, he, he, he was cooking this up on his own. But I mean, certainly if that had occurred to him as a way around it, he probably, I mean, he may have just straight out lied to them anyway and kept taking money out. But um, he, he sort of, he, he, he managed to, to, to allay suspicion for a while. But uh, the Boston Post um, who had been uh, printing these glowing stories about him and his amazing success, which had, was, was one of the things that was bringing all these investors in. Nevertheless, their editor um, was was fairly suspicious of him and started started directing his report uh, his his journalists to um, start digging into it and start asking the hard questions. They um, went and talked to a fellow called Clarence Barron, who was also a final journalist who headed Dow Jones and Company. Um, and he did some did some sums and basically said worked out that in order to cover all of the investments that people had been making in Ponzi's company, there would have to be around 160 million IRCs in circulation, and the actual figure was about 27,000. So that, that certainly didn't add like up. There's a discrepancy. Minor discrepancy, yes. And then on top of that, people eventually thought to go and um, talk to the U.S. Post Office and say, hey, this um, this Ponzi fellow who's been making all his money trading IRCs all over the place, I bet you've been seeing lots of people buying IRCs at the moment. And the U.S. Post Office said, um, no, nobody's really been buying buying particularly large volumes of, of IRCs, not here and not overseas either, as far as we can see. That's so because people... story magazines hadn't been invented by that point, and it's actually not true. Well, yes. Uh, so, so yeah, people were um, so pe- people. Th- th- there was starting to become sort of a groundswell of of suspicion, and in, in amongst all the all the glowing press, um, Ponzi went and hired himself a publicist to try and um, uh, and sort of improve his his image or, or improve his schemes image at least. Um, this pub- publicist, a man who who had worked for the Boston Post in the past basically um, spent some time talking to Ponzi and working for him and figuring out and sort of getting some insight into his company uh, and quickly came to the conclusion that Charles Ponzi was a complete idiot who had no idea what he was doing and was completely full of it. 
um, and managed to find some documents that appeared to indicate that fraud was going on and, the, and immediately sold his story back to the post. Um, and so due to this, the, 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 the slow buildup of suspicion and bad press and accusation eventually resulted in the thing that we, you tend to see where there would, there would be a run on his company. Lots of investors started getting cold feet. Lots of people started asking to withdraw their funds from the scheme now. Um, and eventually it became pretty obvious um, that the money just wasn't there. Um, they, he, he had been depositing all his money in one bank. I think it was Hanover Finance. Um, because he had he had uh, designs on s- sort of taking control of the bank, I think I think his plan was he'd get all this money, he'd put it all in this one bank, and then as the bank's largest customer, that would give him a decent amount of sway over the bank. Sort of you know you have to do what I say or I'll take all, all my millions of dollars and go deposit it in another bank. I think his his his, his real plan was to if he could get made then made bank manager. I guess he thought, you know, if he was then running the bank, then he'd be able to um, continue his his fraud much more easily. But that didn't happen. Um, it all fell apart before then. So that bank collapsed. Several other banks collapsed. Um, all of the investors lost a large amount of their money. And Ponzi, realizing that the jig was up, basically handed himself in to the federal authorities who he knew were looking into him. Hmm. So at that point, we're not done. We're not quite, we're no. almost done, but we're not quite done. All right. He pleaded guilty to the federal charges, apparently at the urging of his wife, and was sentenced to five years in prison. Um, He was released after three and a half years and immediately put on trial in Massachusetts on 22 state charges, which he he believed he'd sort of, he he thought that that by pleading guilty to the federal charges, he then wouldn't be liable for any... Uh, state charges, but apparently they, the state said no, no such deal was done, and he sort of went to the Supreme Court about that a bit. But eventually, it was decided, no, no, you can still go on trial for these charges as well. So there were three separate trials to cover all twenty-two charges against him. Um, he represented himself in court, and apparently, smooth talker that he was, he actually managed to get the juries to rule in his favour in two out of the three trials. But for the third one. He was convicted and got another, uh, was sentenced to seven to nine years. Um, After three years, he was released on bail. And at this point, you're probably thinking he'd be a changed man who'd learned the the error of his ways and set out on the straight and narrow, wouldn't you? That's what you're thinking right now, isn't it? Admit it. That's what you're thinking. Mm, You fool! He didn't do anything of the sort. He was released from jail, immediately went down to Florida and started running a real estate scam, selling bits of packets of swampland or something. Um, and was was fairly quickly caught again, sent back to prison to serve his full sentence, and was finally deported back to Italy. Um, his wife stayed in the USA, who stayed by him to this time, but stayed in the USA planning that once he would go back to Italy and find gainful employment and be able to support her, then she would move over to Italy to be with him. Um, after a couple of years, there was no sign of him Gain, be becoming gainfully employed, and so she eventually divorced him, remarried, and got on with her life. Um, whereas uh, Ponzi lived out the rest of his life um, in Italy, I believe during World War II, by which time he would have been sort of late 50s, early 60s, so so um, too old to be drafted. He just um, sat around, wrote his autobiography, and eventually died in 1944, unrepentant to the end. There's a, a quote that I've seen 
uh, people keep bringing up from his autobiography where he said, even if they never got anything for it, it was cheap at that price. Without malice aforethought, I'd given them the best show that was ever staged in their territory since the landing of the Pilgrims. It was easily worth 15 million bucks to watch me put the thing over. And that basically is the story of the original Ponzi scheme. Kind of interesting, his justification for what he did, which was, oh, but it was a great show. It was a really, really great show. So it doesn't really matter that I defrauded some people because they got a lot of entertainment out of what I provided them. He's almost doing the argument that, oh, but you were, you were, you were paying for something that you knew couldn't really be true. Mm. So you were kind of complicit in it. So, you know, you put a couple of bucks in, sure, but you knew this was never going to eventuate. And yet it sounds like when he started the scheme, he really did think it was going to be viable. And it was only after a while he realized, actually, no, money's coming in, but there's not actually money coming out. Yeah, well, that um, that publicist who he hired and then who immediately turned on, apparently was was basically like, this guy's a complete fool. He, he doesn't understand basic finance or mathematics, really. And yes, it do, does sound like he's a, there's a fair amount of sort of uh, a fantasist to him, but he does seem to be one of these born grifters who feels absolutely no shame whatsoever and who feels entitled to... Um, all the money he wants. Um, but it's interesting you bring up the whole people must have known and kept quiet about it because I, I'm sort of doubly cheating because I don't really know how much this this story counts as a conspiracy purely by the fact that it does kind of sound like it was Ponzi all alone. He, he set this up. I haven't read anything about him having actual conspirators. Well, see, that's why I asked the question about the wife. I wondered mm. whether the wife was going to be someone who when he was ostensibly not doing anything, she was technically running things behind the scenes because that would make it delightfully conspiratorial. Mm. Of course I won't touch the fun whatsoever. I have told you, I personally assure that you that I, Charles Ponty, will touch no money in the scheme whatsoever. I will even sign a document saying that I, Charles Ponzi, sole responsibility will do nothing with regards to the scheme. Uh, sorry, my wife has to go down to the bank to extract some money. Please, you know, just... just Completely unrelated, yes, yes. I mean, she's, uh, she's, she's got to buy some stamps. She's going off to buy some stamps. That's all she's going to do. She's going to buy some stamps with money she's going to get from the bank. Now, what was it? Mm. Oh, yes. I'm Charles Pondy, and I will not touch the money in my scheme whatsoever. Yes. Yes. No, I mean, had we, the, the, the Bernie Madoff case, I think, is more, more overtly conspiratorial because he was running a company and he had people who were instructed in, specifically in the, in the sort of dodgy accounting practices of how they'd write up sort of any time an investment would come in, the people who worked for him would write up these false things and so on. And he, I believe when he was arrested, he was, um, there were there was a dozen or more uh, co-conspirators, which always sounds a bit redundant to me. I mean, I guess I guess if they're a co-conspirator, that means that they're, they're both conspirators in the same conspiracy. I suppose if you said he's a conspirator and she's a conspirator, they might be conspiring about different things. So maybe co-conspirator does make sense, but it always does sound a little bit. Yeah, it does sound like one of those terms which is redundant, but no, you're quite right, because you could end up having two different conspiracies and two different conspirators mm. in those conspiracies. But at the same time, and I think also when we talk about co-conspirators in a kind of legal sense, we're often talking about people who may not have originated the scheme, but are people who aided and abetted the scheme and knew they were doing something wrong. So you might go, well, look, 
you didn't start the scheme and it wasn't your initial intent to cause harm. But then when you found out about it, you continued playing along, which makes you a co-conspirator in this grandiose scheme. Although Mm. in that case, I'd like to see a kind of legal definition between a conspirator and a co-conspirator, where the conspirators are the ones who know exactly what they were doing with forethought, and the co-conspirators are the people who came on board and aided and abetted. And I suspect it probably turns out to not be clear-cut along those lines. Yes, I, don't, I mean, cause, but because it is, it is sort of, you know, a legal, an actual criminal offence is conspiracy to commit fraud or what have you. So there are probably fairly strict legal definitions. But I did think um, another interesting wrinkle along those lines is what do you say about the people who either knew or suspected but um, said nothing or sort of actively avoided finding out anything because they didn't want to find out that it wasn't uh, wasn't legit. I mean, definitely with Madoff, people had been raising um, red flags about him for uh, ever since the late 90s, I think, and their words were ignored. Indeed. And I'm pretty Not sure... Ignored. There were people in the schemes who would deliberately go out there to sow discontent amongst mm. people listening to these cases. Oh, no, they're... They they just made a bad investment elsewhere, and they're just jealous of our good investment. So there were people who presumably were either trying to defend the fact that they weren't looking into the scheme, or people who were going, actually, I do think the scheme is slightly dodgy, but at the same time, so much of my wealth is now tied into that scheme, that if that scheme were to collapse, then other investments which are piggybacked off that scheme would also collapse. So it's kind of in my interest to protect a portion of my wealth by pretending that the other portion of the wealth is perfectly fine and certainly not subject to a Ponzi scheme. Mm. But yes, it's an interesting an interesting case, I think, where you have people who um, are not actual conspirators but are sort of enablers of the conspiracy because they don't want to know uh, that, that, you know, they're, they're, they think something might be up, but they're personally benefiting from it, so they turn a blind eye um, or, or, or even actively try to stop anyone, including themselves, from taking a closer look into it. Yes, yeah, a kind of willful ignorance. Mm, mm. But anyway, that is the story of Charles Ponzi, a colourful character, I think you'll agree. With a most improbable Italian name. That was very interesting. A very interesting mm. tale about not the first Ponzi scheme, but obviously the most notable Ponzi scheme yeah. at the time, given that it suddenly was given a name, the Ponzi scheme. And actually, I only find this in, in the history of ideas all the time. No one denies that fake news has been a long phenomenon in media reporting. But we know that the term fake news is actually relatively new as a coinage that gets used en masse, largely Mm. due to Donald Trump. And so we end up going, well, the term is new, but the actual phenomenon is actually quite old. Mm. And so Ponzi schemes, as you point out, there are examples of that in literature that date back well before Charles Ponzi. It's just that there was no one big case that people went, oh, you mean a scheme like that of Charles Ponzi? You know, one of those Ponzi mm. schemes. Yes, yeah, I think it's usually the the thing that lends its name to any particular phenomenon seems to be the most um, the the most attention grabbing one, which isn't necessarily the first or the best. I mean, that was always the thing about fake news. Donald Trump 
um, sort of th- th- that was a that was an accusation levelled against Donald Trump that he. I, I'm almost tempted to say quite skillfully sort of took and, and flipped mm, around yeah. and, and made his own completely because the the first instances of fake news that I'm aware of were of Donald Trump's opponents saying what he said was fake news. And then he just, he was just like right back at you. No, no, I'm not fake news. You're fake news. And it actually worked. Yeah. Yeah. Depressing actually. Now I'm depressed. I was thinking about wacky old Charles Ponzi and his massive, massive fraud and then we have so to bring it all back question, down yeah. Given that mm. we now know why this particular IRC, IRC scheme didn't work, how are we going to improve upon it so that ours does? Well, I think part of it, there, there were the regulations. So I think obviously we're going to have to take over some sort of government or international organization to remove any regulations around the trading of IRCs. Uh, then there's the fact that people don't use... Uh, physical correspondence so much anymore. So I think we're going to have to destroy the internet. Um, and and then there's the fact that not much of it is in circulation. So possibly once we have destroyed the internet and taken over the world government, we're going to have to require people uh, to to send IRCs with every bit of physical correspondence. And then then I think we'll be in the money. I've got a good first step. We have to become sovereign citizens. Oh, sovereign citizens. Those wacky that way stamps. we can say that the law of the land and thus the regulations do not apply to us. Right. And we can also and then say... we can insist that the state, which we do not recognize the authority of, if they want to get in contact with us, must send us physical letters, which we have to reply to, and thus they will have to provide us with IRCs. Mm, although it has to come from another country. That's the problem. Ah, but so John, make... as sovereign citizens, we are not citizens oh, we are of who we're legally right. in, and thus and we, we can, can demand that they send postage to our foreign nation locations, which are, of course, actually within nation states themselves, where we will then have to use the IRC to purchase the postage of the nearby land to then send that correspondence back. I've, I've worked this out. We just have to right. become sovereign citizens and the manipulate our own currency. Control. Yes, yes, yes. It's all clear to me now. Okay, well, I guess there's there's nothing to do other than than just wind up this podcast and uh, journey off into the sunset into our into our brand new life of financial domination. Now, I have been doing some back of the envelope, excuse the pun, calculations for the kind of profit we're going to make on this, and I figure, given postage conversion fees and actually having to pay for things such as envelopes and the like we can make one percent on every transaction excellent one that's so so that means we only need to make a hundred transactions and and that's a hundred percent we have all the money yes precisely that's number one that's number one Mm. okay well let's 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 get things in motion then um should we should we just pull the plug instantly, or should we should we bid these these pauper well, peasants listening to us we farewell probably, first? We should probably give people an update on our richness and successness. Oh right, yes, they are going to want to know how well we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, we're fine. Next week, next week, we should inform form the poor, pitiful listeners of this podcast just how successful we have become in our Ponzi scheme. Yep, no, you're right. We should keep the podcast uh, purely for gloating purposes. Yes, precisely. I mean, as as we get richer and more famous, the people who are listening to this podcast can realize that they're pathetic 
unfinanced lives where they don't engage in IRC trading and arbitrage has made them into the fools they are today. And then they won't even need to become patrons by going to patreon.com and searching for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy um, because they'll instead be investors by going to patreon.com and searching for the podcaster's guide to the conspiracy. And I'm pretty sure everything will work out marvelously for them if they do. Now, unfortunately, patreon.com is not taking IRCs at oh, this point in time. So we need to take uh, over them as well. Well, yes, precisely. I mean, surely in the same way that Ponzi wanted to take over Hanover Finance, we're going to use our arbitrage scheme to buy lots of shares in Patreon and thus we will end up being the controllers of that system as well. Okay, well, let's get on to it then. Um, I guess uh, before we do, it would be polite, I suppose, to say to our listeners, uh, goodbye one and all from me. And goodbye one and all from Josh. Ciao. Ciao, Bella. You've been listening to Podcaster's Guide to the Conspiracy, hosted by Josh Edison and Indented. If you'd like to help support us, please find details of our pledge drive at either Patreon or Podbean. If you'd like to get in contact with us, email us at podcastconspiracy at gmail.com. And we are started. Oh, one question. Can you hear the 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 aircon? No. No, so that's... Not coming so that's, to it, mind. That switch, which does background noise removal, has turned off the incredibly loud air conditioner because it is 32 degrees outside. And if I turn it off for even a minute, I turn into a puddle because it just warms up in this room like nothing on earth. It's very warm here.